Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You can also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a bonus episode on the four-hour Snyder Cut of Justice League, and we'll soon have another bonus episode discussing Godzilla versus Kong. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Scott Tobias. And Tasha Robinson. Uh, Genevieve Kosky, our usual co-host, will not be joining us on this episode or next episode because we turned her into the coppers. American movie theaters are starting to open across the country for the first time in a year, but we're still largely sticking to quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week is a slight exception, though the new release we're discussing is likely to appear on VOD services soon and might already be available there by the time this episode releases. It's part of a pairing about revenge movies, one featuring a protagonist from American Parts Unknown and one from London's East End. Until he got picked up by a bottle and a stopper, that is. Wait, what? Sorry, a copper. Right. Uh, as I was saying, one is from America and the other is from London's East End, a professional criminal. Because he needed bees and honey. <laughs> bees and honey? Sorry, money. Scott, what are you doing? Well, after watching the first of our movies, I decided to incorporate Cockney rhyming slang in the way I speak. As in, the other day I was cooking up a plate of borrow and bags and drinking some didn't ought and thinking of riding my clever mic. Scott, don't. Okay. Uh, but you can tell us about this week's pairing, okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the last few decades have produced some unlikely action movie stars, but maybe none quite so unlikely as Bob Odenkirk. Odenkirk first drew attention as one half of the classic sketch comedy series, Mr. Show with Bob and David. Since then, he's worked as a director and an actor, most prominently as Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad and its prequel series, Better Call Saul. But he's never had a role quite like Hutch Mansell, in which he plays a man driven to seek revenge after a home invasion, and who's well-equipped to administer his own brand of justice thanks to a shadowy past. That got us thinking about revenge movies, of which there are many. So we picked a favorite and one that offers some commentary on the revenge movie itself in the form of Steven Soderbergh's 1999 film, The Limey, a thriller in which the past haunts both the characters and the world in which they live. So this week we'll turn to California seen through the eyes of an angry visitor via The Limey, then keep the anger flowing via the different sort of revenge trip offered by nobody. And by nobody, I mean the movie. Nobody, not, not nobody. Okay, just so you guys know. So, you're English. Yeah, that's right. Got called out to LA unexpected, like. Do a job of work. No rest for the wicked. <laughs> yeah. You wrote me about my daughter. Jenny was driving a little too fast. Two o'clock in the morning. Could have happened to anybody. No, not my girl. Who done it then? Huh? Snuffed her. What are you talking about? 
This bloke she was bunked up with. Tell you, Valentine. Your daughter, she had a fondness for dangerous men. Can I help you? Terry Valentine. Do you know him? Who are you? Hey, uh, can I ask you a question? you have any friends, man? Wilson's first impression of Los Angeles was blue. He was in the sky at the time, so it was a curious reversal, looking down rather than up at the color he had always felt was nature's finest. So begins Lim Dobbs' screenplay to the Limey, an introduction that ends with the career criminal Wilson recalling better times. Quote, Before he'd gone gray, went to prison, and found himself in a plane over a foreign town, arriving to avenge the death of his daughter. Unquote. Dobbs' screenplay had been kicking around in one form or another for years. He even tried to get Robert Aldrich directed near the end of the great director's career, which ended with his death in 1983. The script eventually landed in the hands of Steven Soderbergh, who previously filmed Dobbs' script Kafka. The first collaboration pleased virtually nobody. Their second didn't please Dobbs, who let his feelings be known via DVD audio commentary he recorded with Soderbergh that complained about nearly every choice made by the director including the excision of scenes Dobbs loved, which Soderbergh filmed but did not use, and the addition of dialogue Dobbs felt sounded like words from a Tarantino script. Simply put, Dobbs is wrong about the movie, and even he sort of seems to recognize it, citing Robert Town and Alain Robrier's gripes about, respectively, Chinatown and Last Year at Miriam Bad as evidence that a writer can hate a film everyone else loves. Mostly, Dobbs seems to miss what Soderbergh brings to material that others wouldn't. As good as an Aldrich-directed version of the script might have been, he wouldn't have brought Soderbergh's fascination with how film can collapse and fold time, how movies shape our ideas about a time and place, and how revenge stories can be ghost stories in disguise. The Limey takes place in the LA of the 1990s, but one filled with reminders of another decade, and characters haunted by the lives they lived there. Terrence Stamp stars as Wilson, a big-time English thief who slipped out of the country while on a compassionate release from prison to take revenge on the man he believes killed his daughter Jenny. That's Terry Valentine, played by Peter Fonda, a 60s L.A. scenester slash music promoter who's made a fortune repackaging the decade of the 1960s for those who wish it never ended, or those who missed it the first time around. He, however, is a man trying to remain untouched by time. He lives with Adhara, played by Amelia Heinle, a woman young enough to be his daughter. Valentine ought to know he's the one who advised her parents to name her after Constellation. He pays immaculate attention to his teeth and lives in a house high in the hills where the world comes to him. But he's made some mistakes that have put him in the orbit of bad men that somehow led to Jenny's death. How isn't really Wilson's concern? He just wants to take Terry out, and to do so in a way that Terry knows why he's being punished and who's doing the punishing. But to do so means making the acquaintance of a pair of Jenny's friends through her time as an aspiring actor. A restaurant worker named Eduardo, played by Luis Guzman, and an acting coach named Elaine, played by Leslie Ann Warren. Both remember Jenny with tenderness and fondness, and both view their new acquaintance with a mix of fear, pity, and intrigue. What Wilson believes will be a simple, cold-blooded, in-and-out operation becomes complicated by his, his memories of the girl he lost and his new acquaintance's recollections of the woman she'd become. This was Steven Soderbergh's first film after Out of Sight, and he used it as an opportunity to expand on that film's experiments with editing and achronological storytelling, experiments inspired by the work of boundary-pushing 60s and 70s directors like Nicholas Rogue and Richard Lester. Soderbergh had become friends with the latter, using their conversations as an anchor for his book, Getting Away With It. It's a case of style and subject melding together beautifully. 
Soderbergh's fresh attempts at old tricks echo the casting of cinematic 60s icons from both sides of the pond and other members of a supporting cast filled with faces heavily associated with films of the era, like Vanishing Point star Barry Newman as Valentine's security chief and Warhol superstar Joe D'Alessandro as a CD hitman. Wilson's a man out of time and he floats through the strange world almost like a disembodied spirit, but he wasn't always that way. We see him in flashes of happier times via footage from Ken Loach's 1967 film Poor Cow and discover, as Wilson does, that he's not as hollowed out as he believes himself to be. But time's had its way with him. His present woes can be laid at the feet of fast mistakes, and it's had its way with Terry, too. He's become rich selling an idea of the 1960s, but he remembers the real thing, and he knows how far out of reach it's become. Even if the 1960s as we know it lasted, per Terry's recollection, just through 1966 and early 1967. Even the good times exact a toll, if only because there's no recovering them, just as there's really no way to set right and misdeed, only ways to bring more misery into the world. But there's also no way of escaping the past. There's only finding ways to live with it and the way it flashes into the present, uninvited, in ways only movies can capture. When I was in prison, second time, uh, no, tell a lie, third stretch. Yeah, third, third. There was this screw what really had it in for me, and that geezer was top of my list. Two years after I got sprung, I sees him in Ola Park. He's sitting on a bench feeding bloody pigeons. There was no one about. I could have gone up behind him and snapped his fucking neck. Wallop. But I left it. I could have nobbled him, but I didn't. Because what I thought I wanted wasn't what I wanted. What I thought I was thinking about was something else. I didn't give a toss. It didn't matter, see? This burke on the bench wasn't worth my time. It meant sod all in the end, because you've got to make a choice. When to do something and when to let it go. When it matters and when it don't. Bide your time. That's what prison teaches you, if nothing else. Bide your time and everything becomes clear. Okay, let's talk about the limey. Let's talk about our history with it. Uh, Tasha, Scott, who wants to go first? You know, I kind of want to go first because I think I'm going to disappoint you both. And then uh, Scott's enthusiasm can bring us back. I remember really, really liking this movie when I first saw it on its release. And for the life of me, I'm, I'm not sure why. It's been quite a long time. And I just don't think I was in the mood for it this time around. For whatever reason, it seemed very disjointed to me. It seemed like a lot of bits and pieces that don't quite fit together, that don't quite add up. You have Terry Valentine's kind of musing about the past and his his hippie-ish constant use of the, the word man, which I found very endearing in a weird sort of way for a character who's supposed to be kind of vile. And you have Wilson kind of stampeding around, but kind of constantly changing his approach in ways that just didn't add up for me. You know, why Why does he go hard in one second and not in the next second? Why doesn't he fight back when he's armed, uh, but then go back into a room and, uh, and kill a whole bunch of people that he could have easily taken on the first time if he'd bothered to pull a weapon or fight back? Why does our hitman Stacy, uh, played by Nikki Cat, make almost any of the choices he made, I guess? Who really is Avery? The characters that Louise Goodman and Leslie Ann Warren play, like, what kind of role did they have in his daughter's life? Just this movie raised a lot of questions for me. And they're not they're not the kind of questions that you enjoy leaving open because they enrich the plot. They feel like the kind of questions that might tie together what feels like a very abstract story to me. 
the back and forth in time, uh, the jumpy editing to me just feels at this point like an inferior echo of Out of Sight, uh, which used it, you know, so memorably and so emotionally. It works fine enough here, but it's a trick that we've seen Soderbergh do before and do better than this. So, I mean, I didn't hate it, certainly. Um, I'm, and I'm not saying it's a bad film. I, th- I think I was just kind of out of sync with it this time around. I like a good tight 90 minute action movie, an in and out story. I like the brevity of this kind of story normally. But in this case, I just ended up like wondering over and over, like, who is this man we're following? Why does he make the kinds of choices that he makes? And why, why is the ending so unsatisfying in a way for what's meant to be a revenge film? You know, it's a revenge film where he doesn't get revenge on the person who really is responsible for all his woes at least apart from himself. And I guess the solution there is that he decides that he himself is the real culprit and he walks away. But then he has a conversation that seems not to touch on that at all. That's all kind of couched in metaphor uh, with a stranger. And and that's the wrap up to our story. I just, I felt like this time around, I was not in sync with what Soderbergh was doing. Bring it on, Scott. Take your revenge. Okay. I mean, I feel like a lot of the questions that you are asking in the film, I could probably answer. So maybe we will get into that granular detail when we get there. But, you know, broadly speaking, I mean, I, I, I saw this film in 1999, which was my first year as a professional film critic uh, here in Chicago. And of course, it was the year of Eyes Wide Shut and Three Kings and Topsy Turvy. And it was, it was one of the one of the truly great movie years of the last you know 25 years and uh i certainly counted this film among the great films that i saw and i still count it as that I, I, to me it is it is top three uh soderbergh it Whoa. and out of sight and sex lies and videotape are kind of interchangeable for me i think this kind of takes it's almost like a, a schizopolisication of out of sight it's a little more experimental and incorporates a lot of the past of these performers in the movies they've been in and the eras they represent and if it, it, it's so it's very much like a, a movie made for people who are you know deeply invested in movies it's a very much a one for me project amid you know a period in which Soderbergh was doing stuff for major studios and doing it well I mean I think he was just completely at the top of his game in this period and what struck me on this viewing which kind of touched me on this viewing was kind of the tone that was set from the very beginning where when you know the first line of the movie is tell me about jenny and the way wilson says it is of course in that gravelly scary intimidating tone he wants he's pressing for information in a way that is suggests that the person who's asking is in big big trouble but you know ultimately the movie is about um him answering that question and him forgetting about his daughter and, and having regrets about not knowing who she was and then and that and also not knowing what her life was like in Los Angeles. And so it's an unusual revenge movie in that it's not just about, you know, answering some injustice or answering violence with violence, but also it's a journey of self discovery for Wilson, uh, who has felt like he has you know, let his let his daughter down fundamentally. Uh, so I found that part touching. Uh, performances are always fantastic. The location of um, Peter Fonda's house, of Terry's house, has always just stayed with me. I think that is just such a perfect, you know, <laughs> metaphor of a house. 
and um, I love the music. Uh, the soundtrack choices are all are awesome. It reminds me of those Richard Lester movies that Keith mentioned, uh, Petulia being a big one. And then, it, of course, it also reminded me of another Soderbergh favorite, Point Blank, which also kind of uses this kind of experimental flashback structure to tell us more about its cold-blooded leading man. I'm just completely in this film the vibe of this film to i'm i'm on i'm just completely on board with uh keith what do you think i love it too i i uh for all the reasons you cite i mean this is a real favorite of mine of, of soderbergh films and um but i i will i will say here's the here's the thing tasha when you said it is sort of kind of scattershot and stitched together you're right actually and i didn't realize the degree to which you're right because i don't even think he was particularly forthcoming about it on on the audio commentary but there's this interview that Soderbergh did with Deadline in 2019 where he talks about how this is a result of a disastrous what he described as a disastrous screening where the film just didn't work he and the editor uh, Sarah Flack basically just blew this movie up and stitched it back together and all the all that we're talking about in terms of like the homages to Lester and Point Blank and the editing and the, and the telling the story out, out of out of order and the flashes all that's not planned it was it's, it's which is sort of amazing to me because to me that is a what makes the movie remarkable I, I do love the way it leaps around I do love it when a film can capture the past kind of intruding on the present there's a good quote in here I'm going to I'm going to quote in full to describe it's sort of describing the film and the editing style. It's, it's, well, it's something that movies do very well, which is, I think, recreate how your mind works. We are perpetually in sort of three different temporal states. We're thinking about things that happened to us. We're thinking about things that might happen to us or are going to happen to us. And we're also in the present, living in the present, hopefully. Uh, so we're sort of a continual melange of mental states. I don't really like that. I, I do like. I do feel like that's a feeling that I don't know any other medium can capture or capture as well as film does. And I think the way this film plays that is is remarkable, and in many ways makes makes the film. I think that the movie, the editing style, the the jumping around style does really bring across the sense of a man who's kind of disassociating, a man who's been taken out of time and is still sort of like living a little bit in the past and living in his regrets and living in the moment of transition. He keeps kind of flashing back to the plane as though he can't quite believe he's where he ended up. And that sequence where he goes to shoot Peter Fonda's character and like we see him several times accomplish it and then we keep jumping back. Like we are seeing a man who's kind of like living in the future of his own violence, you know, who's thinking through it. If the movie had been a little more consistent or coherent about that, like if we had seen him kind of do that kind of practice when he goes into the warehouse to confront people or uh, like later when he goes to strangle uh, Valentine on the beach, I think that it would have worked better rather than it being just sort of this one jumpy central sequence that's kind of out of sync with other ways that disassociation is used throughout the film. I think it would have worked better for me. But again, I think it's very evocative. The problem for me is that it lives in the shadow of out of sight, which does the same exact same kind of like asynchronous sound and and video jumping back and forth, I think both better and more thematically. I think that this is going to come up when we're talking about uh, nobody in our next episode. But this is a movie that lives in the shadow of another better movie that does the same thing. And if it could be entirely isolated, if it could live alone, I think I would it would work a lot better for me. I guess I would object to that characterization because I think 
with out of sight, my feeling was like this is he is telling the story this way because this is the best way to tell that story. Whereas I think with the limey, I watch watch that film and going, he's telling the story this way because he is trying to reflect someone's state of mind, and those are two different goals, in my opinion. I mean, one is kind of I mean, they're just too, I just I don't see them as all that similar, other than you know a willingness to kind of move back and forth in time a little bit, and also just the feel of it is different. I mean, there's so much more shuffling back and forth in the limey whereas with out of sight it's really just about sequencing you know it's almost more like pulp fiction right i mean where you, where you can tell a story out of order but the pieces of the story unfold in in order for most for the most part they're just kind of like sections of the movie are just kind of placed differently here you have you know it's much more rigorous and much more kind of experimental and much more reflective of its lead character's headspace I, I really like this quote that keith found because i think it makes me think about how as you get older you your mind works in a different way like if you're talking about ex, you know existing in three different temporal states where we're thinking about the things that happened to us about the things that might happen to us things about and then we're in the present I think that people who are younger think more about the future and people who are older find themselves dwelling, thinking about the things that happened to them, <laughs> right? And I think that's the state that we're in in this movie is just in a constant state of regret and remorse, you know, and remembering good times that have passed. I mean, the, the scenes from Poor Cow, Good Cow, um, the scenes from First uh, Cow, First Cow, the scenes from Poor Cow, it shows the, the scenes, those those clips, which I really love, show him in a better state. And of course, in Peter Fonda too. At this point in both of their lives, they don't. The future doesn't belong to them. I mean, it was a thought that I had recently when doing that seminar on Once Upon a Time in the West, and and, and you you know, in the way that film ends, it's like Jason Robards and Charles Bronson's characters in that movie. Um, don't be- the future as represented by the train does not belong to them <laughs> this is not they are not characters who can exist in the future and i think that about terrence stamp as well that he is a character who has arrived to do something in the present but has no future his his life is kind of over i really don't uh, think it plays kind of like a ghost story in that sense where he's you know he's removed from from prison he's just out of prison after i think nine years right but it seems like he's almost an you know a vestige of an even earlier time it feels like you know the chronology of this doesn't quite work out the way you think it would if if he's really a 60s person you know stretching into 1999 his kid would have to be a lot younger (laughs) it doesn't really quite make sense but it really does feel like he's he's just a spirit of the past and that's been let loose in the world for to do one thing and uh and will then disappear and i think it also accounts for his behavior which is reckless (laughs) you know you know he is not a shrieking violet in this movie i mean he really kind of goes directly into trouble at every juncture i mean the warehouse scene being the most significant example but also also you know kind of crashing terry's party in a super conspicuous way i don't think there's a any sense of his on his part that he cares that much about surviving this mission he just wants to accomplish it and so he's just he i mean he almost is kind of what you want a revenge movie hero to be is just somebody who's just focused and brutal 
I mean, you're kind of your prototypical revenge movie hero is somebody who's got nothing left to lose. Somebody who's like far too often a man who's lost his wife and or children and therefore is just going full full forward because there's nothing to restrain him from leaving civilization. There's nothing to add a veneer of civilization to his life anymore. It's not my favorite trope. You know, it's the idea that a man is a barely contained animal that uh, only like love and family can hold back. And once that's removed, there's just no reason for him not to not kill everything in sight. Movies go a lot of different directions with that in terms of uh, in terms of how hard they go. But it's just it's not my favorite thing. Yeah, but I feel like this is often commentary on that in many ways. I, I, don't, I feel like this is, is not trying to just not presenting an unreflective version of, of that. Of sure. that trope. This movie in particular, I think, uh, interrogates that idea a little more than, you know, the Mad Maxes of the world or, you know, the far more exploitative versions of the story. Yeah. yeah the, the movies we, we thought about doing but didn't, like Death Wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We did talk a lot about uh, which, exactly which roaring rampage of revenge, as TV tropes call it, uh, movie we should pair with this. And there were a lot of possibilities here. And this is uh, probably one of the the most thoughtful and artful versions of that particular story. But, you know, at the same time, it gets you to the same place of somebody with no, nothing left to lose, which is kind of inherently exciting. You know, that's why they keep doing it is somebody who is willing to break the bounds of civilization and, you know, kill everybody who crosses him is a more exciting protagonist than somebody who, I guess, has has lines that he's not willing to cross. But here we do find a one that he's not willing to cross. And that apparently is blaming the person who killed his daughter for killing his daughter instead of blaming himself. Well, I mean, I think that what makes Wilson intriguing and, and I think better than your average revenge movie hero is that his mission isn't entirely righteous in a way. I mean, the, the really risible revenge films tend to be films that are not thoughtful about uh, the person having revenge. They're just doing something terrible happens to their family or something, and then they're just ready to ready to go and, and as an audience we're completely behind them you know we're sharing in their bloodlust their sense sense of injustice you know they're, they're going to take out all the scumbags who have who have wronged them i mean that is psychologically very flat <laughs> i mean maybe it gives you perhaps a charge as a enjoyer i guess of genre films if they're done well but a film like this there's so much more to reflect on and you know we get the pleasure of knowing and and feeling the the histories of these actors play out as meta text on the screen of Terrence Stamp and Peter Fonda and Barry Newman and Joe D'Alessandro and you know all of these all of these characters who have been in movies for a long time you know it's fun as again as a cinephile it's fun to be in that place of just like kind of geeking out about about how this film deals with you know these stars that we associate with a bygone era okay scott i'd like to hear you talk a little more about that as somebody who is so down on extra textuals and how they might affect the reading of the film explain to me meta why te- meta text not this is not extra textual it's meta text okay it's right because uh, it's, it's there on the screen hmm i mean you know what i'm saying 
No, I, mean, it's not like, I really it's, don't. We're not, Extra textuals we're not learning... are also there on the screen. No, you know, no, if, see, uh, if the the movie had to be edited this way because nobody liked it in okay, the other so, version, okay, that's right. an extra textual, but sure, you're still yes. seeing the results on the screen. If I say something like, right, if I talk about you know the making of the movie, about like how is, is Keith did, which is fine, which is context, that's extra textual. But, but if you're talking about the use of these actors, the way Soderbergh deploys them here, that's metatextual. In my opinion, I, I, think, I, think, a, I think I think you're just picking and choosing what you like. Tell no, me what. So. Tell me what you like so much about this. Like, tell me what about these particular actors and these particular roles excites you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let's go with Peter Fonda as kind of a prime example of this. I mean, for one, I don't think there's ever been a better description of Peter Fonda than the one his uh, girlfriend gives him in this, which is which is talking him as less a person than a vibe. <laughs> that's a, that's a perfect description of Peter Fonda and kind of the energy that he's always brought to the movies. He's always been kind of a, you know, he's been so representative of California at a particular place in, in time that the place in time being like the, being the late sixties and early seventies, you know, is, is the guy who directed, you know, the hired hand, which was like this acid Western with tons of dissolves in it which was one of the first movie i thought of when we named our publication the dissolve it was the hired hand because it's just nothing but dissolves in any case i think it captures that well and then it also makes you think about how a person like that has traveled you know and, and how he's kind of like both you know a relic of that period in a way that is curdled and, and become kind of malevolent in this case you know that he's still recognizably that laid back vibey peter fonda that we've always known but he's also become one of those baby boomers who has sold out completely to say the least who has taken uh what was good about that era and pure and made it into something false and dangerous and and uh predatory i like that and i don't think i mean it's one of those things where you can't cast different people in those roles and have quite the same impact, you know. I just, especially the two leads. I think, I think if you don't cast, you know, those icons, Terrence Stamp and, and Peter Fonda, I don't think you're you have quite as strong a movie. Yeah, I don't get upset about extra textuals quite the way Scott does, or metatextuals, which he loves, or or whatever. But I, I do feel like you know part of the experience is just going to as a moviegoer. And maybe it's just because I've been immersed in one actor's career for a long time, but but you never see someone, maybe you see someone for the first time, the first time you see them, but you're, you're always kind of reminded of past roles and, 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 and you know, other aspects of, of their other person, you know, um, you know a thing or two about Peter Fonda and Terrence Stamp, and you've seen them in other movies, and, and you're bringing all that with you, and I, I think that's not distracting, I think it's, it's valuable here, and I feel like Soderbergh plays with it just the right amount. I mean, you get a Steppenwolf song with Peter Fonda on on screen, and, and maybe it could have been too much, but I think it, I think it works. I mean, you get the Who with Terrence Stamp, and like you know, not only is that their heyday, the era that he's associated with, uh, you know, Terrence Stamp's brother was one of the main people behind the rise of the Who. Uh, uh, Chris Stamp was was just one of their managers or worked for them in some capacity for a long time. Uh, and there's all these little nods there too. I mean, you get Barry Newman behind the wheel of a of a speeding automobile. That's not it's not an accident, and I love that stuff i think you can maybe not know any of that and still enjoy the movie but if you do know that i feel that it's an extra layer this film kind of resonates on yeah i mean it's, but it's all in the fabric of the film though 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If we want to get, if we want to get, again, if uh, uh, not to be too pedantic about it, but all, all of these things are part of the film and not things we're taking from the outside and bringing in necessarily other than our own experience as moviegoers, which is a per- which is something we, we cannot get away from and something that filmmakers uh, can and, and perhaps should play with sometimes. So one of the other like supporting performances of the leap out again, this is like the first times I really noticed Lee Guzman was like in, the, in like Boogie Nights and through here. And it's like, he's just so, so great in this movie. And I, I really like Leslie Ann Warren as well. The mm-hmm. one that really popped for me in, in 1999 was Nikki Cat, who I think is just remarkable as the hitman here. And, and, uh, I, I thought this was like the beginning of Nikki Cat's, um, stardom. And it didn't really quite work out that way. He actually doesn't even really work that much any, anymore. But uh, no. uh, but he's he's quite he's quite good here. A real element of danger in this. Um, it's it's um, yeah it, it's 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 well cast from top to bottom. Bill Duke too. Yeah, I love. I mean, Nicky Cat is I I've always loved. I mean, he he is so. Um, he's obviously. I mean, if you think about like. I mean, I, th- I would should think that much of the improvisation that's done in that movie was done by him. He did the, the, a lot of it feels on, on the fly when he's you know on a movie set, you know, commenting on everybody who passes him by. And I like that he's so such a vile character in this, and, and is always looking for an angle, and always thinks he kind of knows what's going down. I mean, ultimately it, it costs him, but I, I like that kind of like small time criminal arrogance. I think Nikki Cat plays that really perfectly. Having Nicky um, Cat make fun of a child actor is also a little bit of meta textual as well, because he, <laughs> he was a child actor as well. Oh, God, you're right. Yeah. You're right. That's interesting. And uh, yeah, of course, you're Louis Guzman, uh, Leslie Ann Warren. It was a gr- good, it's very good to see them in this movie. And I, I like that the way you sort of put it in your keynote about their relationship to Wilson in the movie, that mix of fear, but also I- intrigue and kind of a willingness to help, because I think they did care about his daughter and that there is they they are engaged you know tentatively in helping him find sort of some sort of justice for what happened to her you know and, and i think that we can also be kind of warmed kind of by the fact that she had friends you know that, mm-hmm. that, that she wasn't completely and also that she she was strong and resistant to terry you know that she challenged him in a way that you know, was ultimately fatal for her, but maybe that that would would give him some I don't know solace or something that that she was able to you know fight for herself as she did. Um, I don't know. I, I thought it was interesting to kind of get to know Jenny through those two characters. I'm not sure there's solace there. It, to me, the only way the ending of the movie makes sense is if he realizes that the reason she fought so hard to take Valentine down, which resulted in her death, was because she couldn't save her father. She, mm-hmm. you know, she had this childhood habit of threatening to turn him over to the cops, which apparently metastasized into an adult version of the the same behavior. But she would have gone through with it because she lost her. This is how she lost her father. You know, this is how he ended up in jail was Mm. she couldn't do enough to stop him. So she's determined to do enough to stop Terry. And he he's not going to accept it. And she she dies as a result. So I don't think there's solace there. I think if anything, it's it's actually worse. I think you're right. uh, I don't know if it's you know, I, I, I love the final scene, which you don't realize is the final scene until you get to it as the final scene in the film, uh, which which is, uh, I think, really quite an effective choice. But, you know, the look on his face, I don't know how to read it. There's a bunch of different ways you could. And, and I don't think any of them are, are quite like peacefulness. But maybe there is, you know, maybe there's kind of a middle 
ground between what you're describing and what Scott describing where, where he kind of, there's a solace of having a better understanding of, of what's happened in his life. And maybe he can kind of start to accept his own role in it a little bit, but I, I don't know that there's necessarily, you know, peacefulness and contentedness on, on the way back from that, from that, uh, from that trip to LA. For me, he's just a little too much of a cipher as a specific character. Like as a trope, we know exactly who he is and what he wants. But all of the additions to the character that make him more specific make him harder to read and harder to understand. And that's why I like looking at the cast, which is full of uh, just outstanding small roles. Uh, one of the one of my favorite performances in this movie it comes from Bill Duke as maybe one of the few characters in the entire story who we know exactly what he wants. Mm -hmm. He doesn't exactly come out and say it, but he comes closer than maybe anybody else in the film. And he just, the way he plays the, the Ted DAA agent as just this seen it all, done it all cynic who is not still making a, a very slight pretense of not just being willing to break any rule possible to, uh, to get his man. Um, you know, when he tosses the file over to Wilson, knowing that Wilson is probably going to go there and, and start killing people, he says something like, you know, oops, there go my slipper hands again. You know, it's still important to him to pretend he's playing the role, even if he's not actually playing the role of a perfectly honest cop. But he seems to be on the on the side of the angels. You know, he he really does want to do what he can to enforce the laws that he's uh, he's been tasked with enforcing. And his cynicism and his contempt for both the system and the world that he's in, while still towing the line of morality, comes through so clearly in what's basically just a cameo, just a, a small performance. Uh, I love that a lot. It's it's one of my favorite things in the film. I also think we haven't said much about uh, Amelia Heinley, who plays Adhara, the far, far too young girlfriend of Terry Valentine. Mm -hmm. uh, the girl that he apparently picked up like two minutes after killing his his previous love interest mm -hmm. her presence is weird and unsettling but she's got just kind of a, a warmth and innocence that's pretty convincing she doesn't necessarily come across as the sharpest crayon in the box i'm not sure how she could considering who she's hanging out with but she doesn't come across as a cynic in the same kind of way she doesn't come across as as mercenary as selling herself to be with a rich guy she just seems to kind of honestly like everything about him and about the world around her i think she manages to to walk a pretty fine line there in not being a terrible character even though i'm not sure she's given all that much to work with yeah she's well, yeah, good until, until she doesn't though i mean i think once she reaches the uh the the end of the end of the movie and there's a gunfire i think she's kind of checked out of that situation i mean she she takes the only real significant shot at wilson like the the only one that works uh, yeah, that's true. she gets an elbow in the face for it but you know she steps up to defend uh the the man that she cares about even mm -hmm. when the ships are down you got to give her a point for that yeah i mean that's that's a character that didn't necessarily need to have you know these kinds need to be sketched as well either that plain fact that keith mentioned i think in the keynote about him <laughs> consulting her parents to name her <laughs> after a constellation pretty much tells you all so much about what you need to know about Terry at that point. You know, I mean, just everything, not just the kind of, we, you know, creepy predatory nature of, of naming someone that you're eventually is going to be your lover, but, um, but also 
you know, just that whole sort of hippie thing of naming someone after a constellation. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's kind respect. of he's kind of vampiric though. He's he's kind of like someone who's trying to stay ageless. He's he's hanging out with people who are younger. He's you know keeping you know, kind of keeping to old ways, even as the future kind of creeps into his life. You know, all with a smile on his face, and, and like you say, Tasha, he's he's easy with the man. You know, dispensing the man. Uh, another he kind like, of succeeds of, too, doesn't he? He's still, yeah. he's very he's very handsome and yes, kind of, he is. And, and just like he's got such charisma, even even in this late in his career, it just has that thing. I mean, it has that Peter Fonda thing that nobody else has. <laughs> you know, if he is a less a person than a vibe, I mean, what what actor has a vibe quite like Peter Fonda? It was so suggestive of of, of that particular time. Uh, I, I would I, say late period Robert Redford, actually. Yeah, it's sort of. Oh, oh, you mean like that handsome or or that? I mean like, that kind of uh, that kind of from the seventies or seventies California vibe. Mm, yeah, I can see. He's that. been pretty consistent, hasn't he? If you look at his roles throughout, I mean, I guess he's, he's gotten a little bit quieter over time, right? Redford. Fond, uh, Redford has. Yeah. Uh, his, his roles. He, he seemed to get more and more reserved. I mean, he was a, he was kind of the the Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid. He's got a, he's a little bit livelier i guess than he would be as he got older but i still think there's a confidence there that they have in common right and paul newman had that as well if you want to mention that of just somebody people who just know there's they've got presence and don't have to push anything too hard right right before we wrap on the actors we like here i i do want to give uh, barry newman a shout out for his role as avery i think that he's something the film really needs as maybe the sharpest character in the batch wilson more or less knows what he wants, but he's in that disassociated state where he's kind of uh, in and out of the present, in and out of reality, in and out of his own head. And uh, Valentine is kind of hanging out in the past and rocking that low-key vibe we're talking about. Avery comes across as a man who knows exactly what he wants and is so used to killing to get it. You know, he's the one that jumps on top of the situation immediately at the party. <laughs> when uh, Valentine just, you know, invites his would-be killer into his home, doesn't really see him there, doesn't really understand the threat, and doesn't know what to do about it. <laughs> Every's leaping into a car, driving after him, and trying to run him off the road. So he, as the thug of the bunch, and not the dumb thug, like the thugs at the warehouse, but the, the thug who is there he's the wolf he's there to clean up your problems he knows what he's doing and i i think without that edge this film gets a lot fuzzier and a lot more 70s he's wilford brimley in the firm basically he's the one who kind of just you know whatever this empire is he's the one who is in the shadows you know making it work but i do like that i like that he is an older actor playing that role i mean i think that a lot of times you know when you think about um the muscle or, or people who are in security that they're younger and bulkier and more physically intimidating and uh, and i like that he's he's not that that at all that he's just calm and in control and uh you know it, it has it has again it's just an interesting presence that he that just comes with being an actor who's been around for a while 
there's just a lot going on in this movie character wise. I think that's where I get that feeling that it's just, it's kind of a bunch of loose ends. It feels like this could be a Robert Altman seventies movie and could stretch out to three and a half hours during which we find out a lot more about Nikki Cat's character, the, <laughs> the, the world's cheapest assassin who just hangs out like playing pool and beating on people when he's not murdering people. <laughs> Or find out about Avery's past or find out about Adhara and who she is and how she ended up where she is. There's a lot of kind of tip of the iceberg characters here. And it gives the movie a lot of flavor. I think it's just kind of distracting from what's meant to be kind of a a straight line story about a, a revenge killing. No, I think it's all about the distractions and and the weirdest sides and the, and the things you only see a little bit of. I mean, that's that to me is is part of what makes the movie so uh, so good. I think we agree on all the all the qualities of the movie. Just disagree as, as about their effectiveness, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, just, I think a lot of the things you said. It's just it's, I'd almost take a glass half full approach to that. Almost just like wow, it's interesting that we learn this much that we can take away this much about so many characters. You know, in a ninety minute movie where there's a lot of stuff going on you know uh, in the cutting and in the, in the action of the film i mean that's you know it's, it's still kind of a tight 90 minute revenge thriller but there's a richness to it that you wouldn't think uh could be accomplished in that short a time frame at the risk of showing our hands too much i kind of feel like we tend to fall into one of two modes on this podcast which is i didn't like it but here are all the things about it i really liked and uh, <laughs> Wait, man, who's that that doesn't man, sound like anyone i know <laughs> i loved this movie now here are all the things about it i could nitpick <laughs> and you know we we swap out who's playing what role but i i think once you once you say that kind of top down eh, it didn't work for me this time around it's still very easy to pick out a ton of things about this movie that are textured and rich and interesting and unusual two little bits of trivia before we move on i think that are worth uh discussing a, a little bit and then we'll, we'll come back to this obviously with our next episode uh one is there's is a what seems like a fairly large missing scene when they go to Terry's house in Big Sur, uh, his ex-wife, uh, played by Anne Margaret, was going to be there, and they were going to have a, a fight. And apparently, was, this was filmed and cut, much to to Lim Dobbs's, uh, um, you know, chagrin. I don't know that the film needs it, and I think that's why it ended up getting on the cutting room floor. But I, I'd love to see that footage. Uh, Anne Margaret would be another uh, '60s icon to pile on to add yeah. to the pile here. Uh, the other is that we might have gotten a sequel if this has been a success. Uh, there was they kind of talked about possibly doing a sequel where uh, Wilson goes and seeks revenge on the men who put him in jail, who, who, uh, who snitched on him. And I would have, uh, I would have watched that movie. I think Lim Dobbs would have watched that movie and hated it. So uh, you know. See, I think, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a little bit of like play to that. Yeah. yeah I, I, think, I, th- I think there's just, I think they're kind of like giving each other the other, the business in that one a little bit. I mean, they did work uh, together again. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it was just you know. I, I mean, obviously, uh, it's still Dobbs one of the greatest screenplay, greatest, uh, greatest audio wonderful. commentaries it's, ever it's, recorded. Yeah, it's it's awesome. But I, but it's awesome. But I think I think a little bit is it. You know, there's a part of it that is for uh, two collaborators sparring a little bit. Collaborators sparring. Who, who's ever heard of such a thing? Um, all right. On that on that <laughs> note, right. I think we'll uh, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Uh, we had a nice voicemail from a listener for whom the film Gallipoli, which we covered last year, stirred some powerful movie-going memories. 
Here's a slightly edited version of that call. Hello, Next Picture Show. This is Luke Walden calling from Providence, Rhode Island. I've been loving your podcast for a few years now. I've been working my way through your whole catalog of episodes. And I have a comment and a question. My comment is that I love it. Uh, I think it's important as a as a straight white guy to say this, that I love it when you bring in uh, more diverse voices into your conversation. I love listening to the four of you talk. I've gained tremendous insights and learned about a lot of films that I have wanted to go see because of hearing you talk about them. But I also think it's really great when you bring in guests who are not straight white people. Uh, and then my question is inspired by listening to your episode recently about 1917 and Gallipoli. And it really brought me back to seeing Gallipoli when it came out in 1981. I was 11 and up to that point had been, I don't know, fairly unconcerned boy interested, among other things, in playing war. And I, I loved uh, kind of heroic battle movies like uh, Kelly's Heroes and embarrassing to say, but John Wayne in The Green Berets. And so this was the first film I had seen that was really an anti-war film. And as an 11-year-old sitting in the theater, seeing it with my dad, uh, I was just devastated and rocked to the core by the ending and the final freeze frame, which, by the way, I think is the single best use of a final freeze frame in any film. I, I sat there dumbfounded for, for long minutes and you know, my dad kind of had to shake me and you know, <laughs> rouse me to get me out of the theater. And I really think that film was the beginning of changing my mind and getting me to re-examine my, my, my values about war and the military and violence in general. And I thought about it for a long time after that and in and, and later years thought about it as a remarkable example of, of the power of film to create an empathetic experience. And so my question, finally getting to the question, is I'm curious to hear your stories of a film that really shook you and changed something about the way you understand the world and changed something about the way you understand uh, the potential and power of filmmaking. So, okay, so what movie completely changed the way you look at movies and maybe even look at the world? Uh, Scott, I'll, I'll have you go first. What, what, what do you got? What's, what's your Gallipoli? Well, I'm going to do two because <laughs> I have to because these are two experiences that, were, that were, um, came along at different times of my life and kind of rewired my brain. One was seeing Wings of Desire in a, a movie theater when I was would have been 16 or 17 and I saw it with a group of friends I was playing in an art house you know I was just kind of getting into movies but had not experienced many much in the way of foreign films I had never seen anything like it and I remember us being you know the, all of us being just tortured by the film right and just in uh you know finding it you know the the fifth or sixth time when a child when it was a child came up you know it was just it, it you, you felt like you were dying or something but it was a movie that i left and it never left me it was a movie i just could not stop thinking about and it just got better and better in memory and images from it continued to haunt me and i think it was that at that moment that i realized that i could both survive and potentially embrace you know strange challenging you know foreign cinema it was a 
dive into the deep end experience for somebody uh, at my age um, and experience. So that's one. Uh, and then the other one, I guess, is a, as an adult, the film The Battle of Algiers uh, really affected me, both in terms of the way a film could be made in a, in a an extraordinarily persuasive documentary style, and also just a recalibration of what my th- politics were and what my thinking was about people who commit terrorist acts and what why they're why what the strategy behind them and and why they happen and and um you know and allowed me to understand it as something a little bit more nuanced than some you know monstrous uh act created you know to harm innocent people it was it was very um enlightening i guess that film just to kind of see a different angle a different political angle, you know, on a situation that I was used to seeing. So those are the two that really stand out to me. Yeah. What about you, Keith? So I think what you're talking about in terms of, you know, there are certain films that just kind of change the way that you, what you expect from films, what, uh, you know, what, what films can be a handful for me later in life were, you know, where's my friend's house uh, by Abbas Kiarostami, uh, Strangers in Paradise by Jim Jarmusch, Eight and a Half to me was a big one. But I think the first one, the one that just completely uh, took over my life for a little while was 2001 Space Odyssey, which I, I saw, I think in fifth grade. Yeah, it would have been fifth grade. Uh, taped it off of television. So, you know, watching this pan and scan commercial interrupted, uh, probably edited version of this film, but I found, you know, you know, I didn't really have a sense of what any of that stuff was at the time, but, but also, um, you know, I think the material was so powerful. It kind of transcended all that. And you know, like, Oh, I'm going to be thinking about this movie for a long time to the point where, um, you know, when I saw it, saw out the novel, read that, read the sequel. I uh, wrote a basic program, uh, computer program, adventure program that, that took you through a very abbreviated version of the narrative of, of the film uh, as a sort of like a text-based adventure game. So yes, I was very into that and remain very into that. It's, it's a film I still uh, see basically every chance I get. Um, it's a film that's also kind of come back to me at various times in my life where I felt like I needed to see that film. And and uh, you know, it's, it's, and I don't think I, I'm done with it either. It's, it's that kind of movie uh tasha how about you man there have been so many and i some of them have been movies that kind of taught me to watch actors differently like the prestige which is a completely different movie watching it the second time and watching what the actors are doing uh than the first time when you're just kind of unraveling it and movies like brazil that just completely changed my impression of what a narrative could be and, and where a movie could end but i thinking about this i guess the the things that really stood out to me one is the very early 1990s films of hal hartley i watched in college just back to back to back trust surviving desire uh, simple men and the unbelievable truth and for me I had not gotten very much exposure to uh, indie cinema at all at that point in my life. You know, my, my my movie experience largely came from occasional family-friendly theatrical releases and uh, musicals and, and Disney movies and then kind of the late 80s boom in VHS tapes and, and VHS rentals. So, you know, I was watching a lot of 80s comedy, which always kind of tended towards, uh, you know, the, the raunchy and sloppy. And seeing this wave of movies that's that was personal and philosophical and extremely low budget, you know, small and and scrappy and idiosyncratic and individualistic. And then seeing so many of them back to back and starting to get a sense of a personality behind them was just a really exciting experience for me. And 
opened up a world of cinema that I just literally had not really been aware of until that time. So (laughs) Hal Hartley, maybe not as strong a filmmaker as he was back then, but I will always have a soft spot in my heart for him. Well, I think Um, it's kind of tough tough to say he's not really doing that much these days. You know, I'd love love a Hartley Hartley comeback. Red Rifle was not that far. That was long a little ago, while ago. With uh, Aubrey Plaza, Aubrey Plaza, who's That's like a... who's kind of the perfect uh, Hell Hartley yeah. type of actress. But Tasha, I, I I think that there, I don't think people really realize, and this may be just a failure of video or repertory programming or something, just how huge Hal Hartley was to you know college students at a certain period. I mean, because for me in the early. 90s it was the coen brothers and hal hartley those were the those were like the people that you needed to who were just must sees and and of course the coens kept making great movies and and hartley kind of faded away a little bit but you know i i saw trust again not that long ago i guess for the dissolve i think uh, for review and it held up so great and it, so we need to kind of put a pin in hal hartley and then for, as and find some connection that is going to allow us to to, <laughs> yeah. to kind of revisit his films because because they're pretty neat they're not easy not all that easy to see though i i don't i don't think i guess most i guess most of the stuff's pretty re- is rentable or whatever but i feel like on yeah. physical media you kind of have to go he, well he's been hal working hartley's on site yeah yeah He's been doing a lot of stuff to try to keep those, you know, a lot of crowdfunding, a lot of things to try to keep his movies alive. So, so hopefully we can work something out because uh, he's he. I think he was unjustly un- forgotten uh, as being a, a pretty important part of indie filmmaking at that period. Uh, Ned Rifle was, be- was seven years ago, Scott. I would what be was? really curious to revisit his movies, but I'm also a little afraid to, you know, in the same way I'm uh, often afraid to revisit some of my favorite movies from the 80s. I just feel like there's no way that, you know, movies that blew my mind when I was 19 are going to be the, the same to me now. And I, I almost want to hang on to those memories more than I want to go back and, and see how his philosophy looks to me, you know, at a, a, a much older age. So Tasha, if you just wanted like a little bite-sized Hartley, like I didn't realize until recently he did a a fair number of music videos and did one for New Order, which is quite good, and one for um for Everything But the Girl, a couple for Everything But the Girl, um, including this um, video for their cover of Only Living Boy in New York, which is which is really lovely, and it really is kind of me. Just the, the look, the the way it's, it's shot, the way people are dressed, their mannerisms is is kind of like everything he did so well at that period in miniature. So uh, that's that's worth a Google. Oh, that's that's amazing. I'm going to have to look that up. Uh, I risk getting earwormed with Only Living Boy in New York, which I ran across for some reason about two years ago, and then it just lived in my head nonstop for a month. So I'm a little afraid of that, but kind of excited to see it. You know what the song's about? Uh, a, a boy who lives it's in New York. Paul Simon being upset that Art Garfunkel is off filming Catch-22. <laughs> Well, it's not the inspiration. I don't. I don't think a song's about anything. But that was, uh, I believe, that's the 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 prompt for that song. Okay, well, that's also going to live rent free in my head alongside <laughs> the the actual tune. Uh, the one other movie that I really wanted to call out that I really do think rewired me in a significant way is a uh, fish called Wanda. Of all things. Again, growing up on the movies that were available on on VHS at your video villages and whatnot in the 1980s, and also being somewhat subject to my my father's taste in movies, we just we saw a lot of action movies and a lot of kind of raunchy comedies. And I feel like A Fish Called Wanda was maybe the first movie that I, I ever saw that had a strong female lead trademark. 
you know, that had a, a woman in it that was not just the protagonist, but was uh, smart and capable and that was willing to weaponize her sexuality uh, while still owning it. I, I have a just a, such a strong memory of her deciding that she wants to get to know John Cleese's character and kind of like taking off her, her little shrug and adjusting her top to show her breasts to better advantage and then putting on a new accent and a new persona and going after him. Like I'd seen heist movies. I knew to expect that kind of like chameleon quality from male criminals, but I don't think I'd ever seen a smart female criminal in an interesting way before. So I loved that character. But another thing about that movie is it might be the first film that I ever saw that depicted sex as something potentially fun, you know, not something heavy and maybe a little angry and sultry and dramatic and not like terrifying and violent, but something that two adults could do for enjoyment in a, a silly sort of way. A movie that laughs at sex without making it unsexy uh going back and re-watching that sex scene between uh, jamie lee curtis and and john cleese it's still hilarious to this day and there's so much fun i guess it's not technically a sex scene attempted sex scene but uh, mm -hmm. a fish called wanda there's boy there's some stuff in it that uh doesn't quite pass muster today but an awful lot of it is still really damn funny oh that's a stone cold classic in my opinion fish called wanda i, I love it and I think it should, should it should be talked about a lot more than it is as being a great movie from that time period. We also received a letter with no real question, but a lot of neat observations inspired by The Last Unicorn. Uh, we thought we'd share it. Tasha, can you read that one? Sure. Christina writes, longtime listener, longer time reader of the AV Club slash The Dissolve, RIP. I had a couple of thoughts about your pairing of The Last Unicorn and Raya and the Last Dragon. I recently showed my three-year-old daughter The Last Unicorn. Like Tasha, it's a much beloved childhood favorite of mine. I was surprised at her love and connection for the film. We've watched it four times, considering its lack of a tight narrative or flashy sidekicks, etc. This reminded me of the discussion regarding both The Last Unicorn and Minari, and how childhood well-lived is often both frightening and strange, and how perhaps films that are strange and lack a tight narrative structure, but offer more archetypal experiences, actually mimic childhood as lived better than, say, A Last Dragon. My neighbor Tortora is also a big favorite with her, and for maybe the same reasons. Also, thank you to Genevieve for explaining where I must have first seen Unico and the Island of Magic on the Disney Channel 1988. Now I can rewatch it on Amazon and see if my nightmare fuel was all that explosive. I like this. I, I think I, I did not see The Last Unicorn. I broke my Cal Ripken-like streak of being on, on all of the podcasts with that, but, but I do strongly agree with the observation that children you know particularly younger children in my experience are really receptive to a certain type of abstract logic in their animated films i mean my she cited my neighbor totoro my neighbor totoro was my eldest daughter's favorite film as a very young child uh, and in fact I, I, miyazaki is now now that she is 13 has kind of become her favorite filmmaker for maybe different reasons i mean she can appreciate them in a different way but i think the lesson being you know, your kid is probably going to be less resistant than even you are to the kind of strange narrative paths that the story can take. So take chances with them. And also show them uh, Winnie the Pooh cartoons, which do kind of have storylines, <laughs> but are kind of also just hangout movies with a, a whole bunch of kind of toys come to life. You know, yes. same kind of vibe, just a, a friendly, airy kind of story with a lot of little nuance in it, but that are pretty sweet. 
I agree. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll take a look at Nobody, another movie about violence and revenge that might come to some different conclusions than The Limey. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. And follow us on Twitter at, at NextPicturePod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, be on the lookout for 60 cinematic icons with grudges. Mm-hmm.